Get your Bibles out and uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 here in just a moment. I uh, was wanting to uh, make available the table of the Lord for everyone to participate in. And as I was thinking about that and thinking about the date that I wanted that to happen, I just felt quickened to teach on the table before we received from it. I don't know that I've ever preached on communion. I, I, I suspect I have. Uh, it's been so long, though, that I don't remember when. And as I was thinking about it, I thought that it fit in well with our teaching series that we're doing currently called Embrace the Grace. And so uh, all of this kind of dovetails together. And uh, we're going to be receiving communion here at the end of service. But I feel like that I just have opportunity through the word just to set a good tone. And hopefully it will cause this to be an incredibly meaningful, impactful moment. Uh, I intentionally wanted the kids uh, to be away this morning in their own service. Um, in the near future, I've already visited with Pastor Tyler and I've instructed him that uh, he's going to take a couple of weeks. It's, it's going to be a little bit. He's working through the series he's in. But I've instructed him to, uh, to uh, teach at least two times, one on the table of the Lord and one on baptism for the kids. And we're wanting to sow some things into them. But I thought before that even happened with them, I wanted to take some time with the adults so you can catch the spirit of uh, what we're endeavoring to do. And hopefully in that you'll catch the heart of God. You know, many groups teach that communion is what's called the means of grace or a means of grace. It's a place at, that as we come to it, we can receive uh, an imparted uh, measure of God's grace in our life in a very special way. I personally have no problem with that. I personally have no problem understanding that as I partake of the elements, the bread and the cup, that at that moment with these very natural, tangible items, uh, we can receive uh, some special dispensation of, of grace or glory from God Himself. So, so I, I like that. I understand that. I would even receive that as long as we understand that partaking of the elements does not make you saved any more than eating Mexican food makes you Hispanic. Are you following me? I'm glad you like Chinese food, but that does not make you Asian. I'm glad you like Greek food, but that doesn't mean all of a sudden you're Mediterranean. You come to the table of the Lord and receive the elements. That does not mean necessarily that you've been saved. What that means is you got maybe a little snack, but not necessarily the grace of God. Catholics actually call uh, the bread the Eucharist. Many people don't know what Eucharist means. It actually comes from a Greek word. In fact, if you'll recall several weeks ago, I mentioned to you that the actual word grace is the Greek word charis. Charis. Eucharis. You means much. Much grace. So Eucharist means much grace. And I'm going to get back to that in just a little bit, and we're going to talk about that. But I just wanted to set a tone because, well, I guess I'll just say it, that the church at large... Now, I'm talking about the body at large. I believe has lost the power, the wonder, the awe, 
and the real reason for the communion meal. I think we've we just ended up, uh, wound up, perhaps even in things that have detoured us and have hidden from us what God would really like to do in these moments that we spend together. Now, with everything we do in the church, there have been certain controversies that have surrounded or swirled around this area. It has certainly swirled around the table of the Lord. Controversies such as, how often do you receive the elements? One pastor friend of mine has determined that he no longer will serve communion in the life of the church because he believes that it's just dead ritual. And he may have some points there. In, in most places that we've witnessed, there's a lot of dead ritual that goes on with regards to the table of the Lord. And so he's just decided that in order to get rid of dead ritual, they just won't do this anymore. Now, at my grandmother's church, when she was alive and the church she went to, they received communion weekly. And I always called it speed communion because uh, it would be handed out and passed through. And I mean, if if you closed your eyes or blinked or just nodded off for a minute, you could miss it. I mean, I mean, it was every week in the sense they did it every week. They had it down to a to an art form and man, they could whip through that stuff in a hurry. But they believed that you ought to receive it every single week. There have been issues over what should the elements be. Should you use real wine or should you use grape juice? Should you use unleavened bread or leavened bread? Should you use wafers? Should you use a loaf of bread? Any of you ever received those, those wafers that look like Alka-Seltzer? Have mercy. Or the ones that look like dentine? I know you're looking at me saying, sweet Jesus, is lightning going to strike with pastor saying all these things? I mean, one of our greatest debates in seminary was over what kind of what, what, what could you make the elements out of? I mean, I mean, most of us use some form of bread and, and, and juice, but we started talking about what if you couldn't get bread and juice? I mean, could you use chips and Coke? And then I remember somebody in the back said, well, how about beer and pretzels? And then the question is, when you when you receive it, do you? Do you, do you dip the bread in the cup, which is called intinction? If you ever wondered what that was called, I'm telling you, intinction. So do you just, do, can you dip the bread in, in, in the cup and that's how you partake of it? Or I don't know if you've ever been, ever been in a service like when they use common cup. I hear some have been in that service. I know, I'm not a fan of backwash either. Or does everybody get their own little cup and, and, and your own, own bread? I had an experience recently in a, a mainline denominational church that uh, served communion and we participated in it. It was a Protestant church and uh, it was interesting. They had one place where you received the bread and then they had like these two cups. Now, I've been around this stuff for a long time, but even I was a little confused over what cup and what was going on. It looked like maybe some were using common cup and the others were doing intinction. So I just decided I, I didn't know these people. I was in a different church, so no common cup for me. So I was going to do the intinction thing. So I got the bread and I, I dipped it in the, in the cup, popped it in my mouth, going back down the aisle, and baby, that was the real stuff, man. I'm, I don't know what they were using, but that cleared out my nasal cavity right there. I mean, I was like, Whoo. I mean, that was like, get a designated driver after that commun communion service. I mean, it was stiff. That was stiff stuff. 
There have been those that have taught and believed that literally when we prayed and you received the elements, that they, they literally turn into the body and blood of the Lord. It's called transubstantiate. That, that the elements mystically change into the body and blood of the Lord. There are those who believe that the presence of God simply emanates from the elements. That's called consubstantiate, which means its presence somehow simply uh, emanates from the elements. And then there are those of us, and most of us that grew up in Protestant circles, have sort of, whether we were taught this or not, we sort of just got a hold of it, that when we came to the communion table, it was sort of like we were taking this sentimental journey. And we were just kind of remembering the sacrifice. And, and, and so all of these things, maybe not so much for you, but for me, they, they come to me at moments like this. And I'm just going to put it out there because for me, and I'm just talking now for me, I have rarely participated in what I would call a powerful communion service. Now you perhaps have. Wonderful. But for me, I don't know that I've ever had a meaningful, powerful moment around the table of the Lord. For the most part, if I was really honest, I'd have to confess that what I see and what I experience is a lot of familiarity. I see the faces of people familiar with what's going on. I see us as a people go through the ritual of receiving, perhaps even, and I'm no judge, but there can be even trivialization at times of what's taking place around the table of the Lord. Now, we're not picking on anybody. I've been there myself. I, I'm the one that sets these things up. I can trivialize it probably quicker than anyone here. And to some extent, I think that's what was going on at the church at Corinth. That they had finally reached the place where they had so trivialized and become familiar with the table of the Lord that Paul literally had to write some things in order to put it in order, in order for them to recapture the reason, the nature, the awe and the wonder, the majesty, the glory, whatever it was that they had lost, he had to write something to them in order that they might have opportunity to recapture it again. Now, if you have your Bibles, and I'm sure it'll be put on the screen overhead, I want to read to you, and it's, it's a lengthier passage, but you'll make it. In 1 Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 23, when Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he begins to set some things in order with regards to the table of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, this is what Paul writes and we read. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, now this is, this is really the critical part. Therefore, Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Now, I'm going to get back to that in just a moment. You may want to underline that. In an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Would you not agree with me that what he said there is pretty significant? Pretty significant. Verse 28, it says, but let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, he's telling us something's happening because it's not being handled appropriately. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. That word in the original language, I don't know why they translated it sleep. Basically, he says they're dying. It's the sleep of death. You're dying. In verse 31, it says, For if we would judge ourselves, for if we would judge ourselves, I'll say it again, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Restoring, I've entitled the message today, Restoring the Grace on the table, restoring grace on the table. Now, the Corinthians uh, were in many ways, I think, like the modern American church. They were amazing in their gifts. They were amazing in their acknowledging of the Holy Spirit. There were many things you could say about the Corinthians. Large church happen in place. Miracles out of the gifts were taking place. There was an amazing amount of, of wealth and income. It was probably the first time the church had begun to see really people of means coming into the church there at the church of Corinth. So there were these incredible things that were going on in the city of Corinth. But Paul works through this whole first letter to the Corinthians and he begins to deal with some things in that particular local church that had to be addressed. Some of you know those. You know your Bible well enough to know that there were divisions that were taking place. They were already dividing themselves up, saying, I, I'm of Apollos and I'm of Paul. And then there was the super spiritual group who said, we're of Jesus. And so they had divided themselves all up into different uh, cliques and divisions. He works through the letter until he finally gets to chapter 5 and he begins to deal with things when he says it is even said that there is immorality that goes on in the church. And so there were those who were practicing immoral things. There was drunkenness, not just to mention just purity, rudeness and ill manneredness. And it even spilled over during their church services, during their love feasts and during their time around the table of the Lord. And it was because of this that Paul said that certain repercussions we're beginning to take place. Now, I want you to hear me carefully when I read this. Paul's just making an observation. I liked, I liked what uh, David Jeremiah said this morning. I was watching a little bit of him on the television before I came into the office this morning. And he, and he made a really great statement, I thought. He said that, that you know, when you're, when you're running the Christian faith, when you're running the race, you can't judge the race while you're running it. You can't judge the race while you're running it. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm a runner in the race. And I can't judge in the sense that I, I, I can declare, you know, with, with absolute certainty people's spiritual state. And, and Paul isn't sitting here judging people, but Paul's beginning just to make some observations. How many of you know that um, Jesus said you could know a man by his fruit? That's not judging, that's observation. I, I mean, I can open up a barrel of apples and I can start pulling out apples. And the minute I come to a rotten apple, I'm not judging it. I've just made an observation. I don't judge people, but I can observe some things. And in that observation, it can cause one 
like Paul to come back and say, listen, I'm making some observations as to what's going on here around the table of the Lord. And I want to remind you that what I'm seeing is, is that there's sickness, there is weakness, and there's even death that's occurring that he can attribute directly to their handling of the table of the Lord. Now, I, I want to dwell there for just a moment because I think this is saying something far greater than what you might first read. Now, I don't know how many of you keep track and read the blog on the website, but, but I posted a blog earlier in the week and I made a statement that I have made before here, before you all. And, and it's just something that I want to sow into your thinking in order that you can understand maybe the ways of God. And this was the statement, and I, and I elaborated on it on the blog site, and I'm going to touch on it again here. And it's this. Behind every dead religious ritual, behind every dead act or activity, there was once grace and glory. Now that's important for you to get a hold of. Because there's so many things we do that are ritualistic and maybe even dead. But the point being is, is that we don't do them just because it's the thing to do. We do them because at one time there was a grace and there was a glory that existed on that thing that caused us to gravitate to it. There was divine life in it. Now, let me give you just a couple of examples as I sort of dwell in this area. I want you to think back to the uh, original tabernacle as God gave the directions for the tabernacle to Moses. Think about the sacrificial system. Think about the temple activity. All of these things which would eventually become dead ritual, dead acts, and dead activity. There would come a day when people would go through the ritual of bringing sacrifices and going through the motions, and they would do everything they were assigned to do there in a tabernacle or a temple, and it was just dead ritual. Now, having said that, understand that when God gave those ordinances and instructions and precepts to the people begin to receive again that when they would do the tabernacle uh, activity, when they would do the rites, when they would offer up the sacrifices, the Bible tells us that there were moments that God would descend in a cloud. That there would literally be fire that would come from heaven that would consume the sacrifice on its own. I mean, I don't know about you, but that would be a powerful sacrifice service, wouldn't it? I mean, the Scripture tells us, the Scripture tells us that, that the priests, when these moments would happen, they would, they would not even be able to stand. They would literally fall down. People would die. There'd be this smoke, this fire. Now, we understand that if we were to suddenly construct ourselves a temple, and if we were to suddenly go through all of this ritual, because all of that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, we would understand that there would be a lot of dead activity that would be happening. But behind that dead ritual or behind that dead activity, there was once glory and power and anointing. And let me tell you something, if you didn't handle it right, you might not walk out alive. Think about that. Actually, it's amazing, even if you were to study history. There have been all sorts of things all through the history of the New Testament church. I believe things that, that God revealed to man. He, he revealed maybe certain, certain outreach programs. He revealed certain programs to maybe disciple people. He revealed certain things and ways of doing church. He, he unveiled uh, hymns and, and, and songs and all sorts of things He revealed all through the years in his church. And I just want you to know that there was a day that you and I would sing, bring it in the sheaves. 
Some of you are going to bring it in the sheaves. Bring it in the sheaves. We will come rejoicing. Bring it in the sheaves. You never watched Mayberry, have you? And barn. Well, there's no anointing on that. But there was a day. Those songs were birthed out of an anointing. They were birthed out of the glory of God. But if you were to sing it today, we all just kind of stand there going, man, this is dead as a doornail. And, and, and I agreed it's dead as a doornail. But behind every dead thing, there was once glory and grace, power and anointing. And listen, the people would marvel. Is it not true when you see God doing something or when you see him moving upon something, it, it, it just can cause you to be awestruck. You marvel, you wonder. These are amazing things. Now, now in Old Testament times, let me just share something with you. I was listening to a tape series that my wife has, and we're listening to it together. And there was a, a, a short instruction in one of the messages we were listening to that really just resonated with me as I was preparing this about two sons of Aaron whose names were Nadab and Abihu. Now, don't get all hung up in their names. I mean, I, we can call them Paul and Roger for all I care, but it was... It was Nadab and Abihu. And Nadab and Abihu were Aaron's sons. And as you'll recall, Aaron, Aaron was designated a priest. And, and his lineage was designated to be the ones who did the service of the temple. And, and so the sons of Aaron would be automatically, so to speak, called into that ministry service. Now, in Leviticus chapter 10, and you can read this. Uh, when you go home today, you can see the whole account there in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, who were Aaron's sons, the scripture says were ministering to the Lord, but they were using what was called strange fire. In fact, a better translation might be unauthorized fire. Some of your versions might even say profane fire. Now, what is unauthorized fire? Well, you need to understand that, that they had scepters in those days and, and sacrifices would take place and fires would have to move sometimes from place to place. And, and the key was that there was, a, there was a fire that came off the altar that was the fire that God sent that, that initially started it all and that was the fire of the Lord. But Nadab and Abihu, you know, they had, they had, they had functioned around the temple so much and they had seen their dad do temple work so much and, and, and they watched all of this that they came to the place where they could shortcut here and there. And so instead of taking the time perhaps in order to get the fire of the Lord off the altar, what they would do is, is that they would just get their bick out and they'd start their own fire. Because, hey, it's just fire. It looks the same. It will burn you still. It's the same color. It's everything that this other fire is. But, but, but they just did it on their own. And it was called unauthorized fire. Now, get a hold of this. Because oftentimes in the Old Testament, we don't really get what's going on. You see, they had watched what their father had done for so many years. They had watched it with such familiarity. They had watched it until it just became what it was. It wasn't anything special. It wasn't anything awesome. It didn't contain any wonder. There was no marvel to it. It was just what dad did and now we're expected to do it. And suddenly they decided that they could do whatever they wanted to do and they no longer needed the help of God or the fire of God on what they were doing. They just create their own fire. Are you following me? 
And what happened was, on this particular occasion, in Leviticus chapter 10, is they started their own fire. Now listen, this, is, this will make you go trip. They started their own fire, and God killed them. That seems a little severe. But you have to understand, the lesson that was being underscored here is God saying, listen, you, you, you can't be flippant with fire. You can't trivialize my fire. That's what the Lord is saying. You can't trivialize these acts of service. You can't trivialize what's going on in my temple. You can't do it. And there was such, listen to me, there was such glory and there was such grace. The presence of God was on that temple in such incredible power and magnitude that when they messed up using unauthorized fire, God killed them. God killed them. Now, you may not like that. That's just the story. Just hang with me for just a moment. Now, the reason I tell you this is because uh, our generation in some ways has done the same thing. You've heard me say this before. My greatest concern for the next generation that's meeting in children's church and some of these young people that are here today, my greatest concern is, is that they experience every week as normalcy, that which cost me everything. Listen, folks, I loaded up everything I had in a rider truck and I had $300 in my pocket and I moved from Oakland, California to Spartanburg, South Carolina, and I did it for the pure purpose that I was going to pursue God and the fullness of the Holy Ghost. And I wanted to know what God could do by way of supernatural miracles. I didn't hardly have a penny to my name. I, I literally, every worldly thing you could fit into a rider truck, I paid a price for that. Now, I'm happy to have done it. Some of you paid prices for your beliefs. And, and your Christianity, and, 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 and that's wonderful, and those things are appropriate. But we have a generation that just grew up in it. See, for me to lift both my hands up in certain circles would get me a quick ticket out of that church. See, so when I lift my hands up, I have a whole different feeling about that than other people do. Because they just grew up in it. There was a day that if I were to pray in tongues or pray in the Spirit, in certain churches, I'd get a quick, quick ticket out. In fact, they'd have an usher specifically designed for me that would give me the left foot of fellowship. So when I pray in the Spirit, there's a whole different dimension in my history to this moment of liberty I have. But we have a generation that's grown up in it. And it's like, well, you know, Whatever. And our generation, unfortunately, and we're seeing even that generation rise up into places of ministry. And they're raising up strange fire. Unauthorized fire. I, I, let me just stop there for just a minute. Several centuries after Nadab and Abihu, there was another priest by the name of Eli. Eli also had some sons in the ministry. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. Now, this is interesting. We're talking several centuries later. But Hophni and Phinehas were priests in the house of God. And the scripture tells us, now listen to this. They aren't, they aren't just flicking their bick to do strange fire. But the Bible tells us that they're literally having sex with married women. Just outside of the door of the holy place. Now, I'm not talking that they were out at the front of the, of the temple at the outer court 
you know, behind some crate. I'm talking that they were within about 10 paces of the holy place. The Ark of the Covenant. And they're having immoral relationships with women consistently. Now, I know how we measure things. And I'll just tell you right now, if I was measuring something, I'm telling you the guy that's flicking a bick and raising up unauthorized fire has not reached the place of this debauchery. But it's amazing that God doesn't seem to address Hophni and Phineas. It appears as if for whatever reason, they're allowed to go on with this crazy behavior. Have you ever wondered, you probably never put it together, I don't know that I always put it together, but why would God so severely judge these two sons with something that seems so menial, but yet He allows these two sons to do something so grave and, and debauched and yet lets them go? Here's the difference. In Aaron's time, there was glory and there was grace. There was such power and glory and grace that you couldn't mess around in the presence of God without it literally costing you your life. But by the time we get to Eli, there's no more grace, there's no more glory, and people did and lived any way they wanted, and nothing ever happened. Because there was no grace. And there was no glory. This is where we are. Today, similar thing happened in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They were just lying about an offering. And they lied about this offering. And, and out of this lie, Peter declares that, that they lied to the Holy Spirit. And instantly, this couple falls over dead. Now ask yourself this question. Why? Why would God judge that so severely in those days? It's because in those first chapters of the book of Acts, there was such glory. There was such power. The presence of God was just so thick and tangible that you couldn't do those things in the presence of God with putting, without putting your very life in jeopardy. But time goes on, and how many of you know we take offerings in churches all over America today? And ain't nobody dying. Well, why is that? You don't think there isn't some lying to the Holy Spirit going on? Oh, come now. No, no, the reason nobody's dying anymore, it's because there's no grace and glory and power and anointing and presence. In some ways, I guess we can be grateful, can't we? Because if God were really to show up, it might change how we got carried out. That's exactly what was happening at the church at Corinth. I tell you these things because at the church of Corinth, they were reaching the place where, where they were mishandling and trivializing what was going around the table of the Lord so that Paul would look at him and say, you wonder, you wonder why there's disease in your ranks? I'm telling you. You've mishandled the table of the Lord. He says, you wonder why you're spiritually weak and depleted and there's no strength in you to even get through your weak with some sense of victory? It's because you've mishandled, he says here in 1 Corinthians 11, the table of the Lord. And then he goes so far as to say, do you understand why people are dying? If you think they die over an offering, what do you think God would do around His table? And people were literally 
dying because even yet at the church at Corinth, there was, there was such glory and anointing and power and presence that still remained. In fact, the implication of these verses is that as the church would gather for their love feasts and as they would gather for their communion meal, that literally as they received the elements, there would be miracles that would take place. Healings that would take place. There would be a strengthening that would take place. I just, this is the way my mind works. And I, I, so I'm just letting you in, in, into my mind for a minute. I, I don't want to defend because I understand the theological issues with Catholics and, and, and regarding the elements as the literal body and blood of the Lord. I, I, I understand theologically the, the problems with that statement. I understand that, that to transubstantiate some things would cause you to take a leap of faith that I don't even know that the Bible underscores. So I, I understand that. And again, I'm not throwing stones. I, I will say this. That if people were literally mishandling the elements in the early church and they were getting diseased and they were, they were being depleted and they were literally dying, I'm telling you, you could develop a doctrine of presence out of that. Yes, you could. Yes, you could. You see, we've just, sometimes I think we've just sort of developed the doctrine of sentimental journey and just simple remembrance. It's because we've got to figure out a way to somehow let people know we don't have any glory. We don't have any power anymore. Don't expect too much when you come around the table. Nothing really is going to happen. It's just, it's just a little snack time that we do. One of the rituals we got around here. But don't expect too much. It's because there's no grace and glory anymore. This doesn't happen anymore. Why? It's because the glory is departed. The awe, the wonder, the presence. Can I just share this with you? I don't think we fear the Lord anymore. Now, I'm not talking about being afraid. I'm talking just that, that respect, the fear of the Lord. We have become so familiar with the church and everything we do in church. We've trivialized just about everything. And worse, listen to this, worse is we can be an outbroken sin and rebellion and never fear or respect for a moment the handling of the elements. I, I can just tell you, again, I'm no man's judge and I'm not going to police the table. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not your judge. I'm not going to police the table. But I'm not, I was, you know, I was born at night, but it wasn't last night, you know. I understand that there are people that will come and they will handle the elements and they will handle the things, the holy things of God. And let me tell you, there was no examination. There was no repentance. All there was, was I don't want anyone to know anything except I'm okay. And I'm going to walk out these doors and keep doing exactly what I've been doing. See, we can maintain our appearance because there is no glory and there is no power. We can maintain. That's how we get by in the church in America. We get by with just maintaining appearances, saying the right words, acting a certain way, being a certain way. And we get by with it because because there's no glory anymore. Back in the early church, you do that and they might carry out, but not in our church today. No, in, in our mind, it's it's something maybe we do quarterly. I don't want anybody to think I'm not OK with God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got my kids with me and it's hard. It's hard to it's hard to keep the kids corralled. So I don't know what they know. I'm just going to just give them give, give them a wafer, give them give them something to drink. It's no big deal. You know, we'll figure it out later. I mean, it's folks. Come on now. Come on now. We're, 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 trying to, we're trying to keep a kid from screaming so we give them what they want instead of understanding that there's a God out here 
that's actually wanting to do great things in our midst. But we've trivialized it. I wonder if I wonder if Aaron ever ever just looked at his sons and just said, just give them what they want, give them what they want, give them what they want, and it ended up killing his sons. I wonder if Eli ever stopped as he watched his sons commit their their debaucheries, even in the house of the Lord. I wonder if there was ever a moment Eli just said, well, what can I do? What's a priest to do? I understand it's hard raising kids. I get it. But I think there's a moment as a pastor, I've reached the moment that that while I can't police anything and I understand that it, it is what it is, but I at least get to sow into you a moment that hopefully you'll reflect on and maybe we can begin to restore the grace and the glory on the table so that when people do partake, healings will happen. Miracles will take place. Strength will come into our system again. Those that have been given prognosis from doctors that they have only three months to live will suddenly break out of that disease and they will live and not die. This isn't, this isn't just a ritual, man. This is an opportunity to touch God. Touch God. And I believe this is what the Lord said. I'll just tell you what He said to me. And I believe He's saying it to us. He said... If you will restore the awe and the wonder, I will restore the grace and the glory. If we'll restore the awe and the wonder, God will in turn begin to manifest His glory. And the good news is, is that all the healings and miracles and everything we want will begin to be manifest. But remember, remember, if the glory of God shows up, wow, that can be even a deadly thing. Now, there are three things that Paul tells us to do as we restore the table. I'm just going to do this real quick. Number one, he says it's time for the Corinthians to walk in revelation. Here in verse 23, he basically said, for I received from the Lord. It's time we understand that as we receive from these tables, we're receiving from the Lord. And we need the revelation that accompanies it to be in our spiritual system. I believe that the table needs to be unveiled to us again. It must be opened to us again. Paul, it was interesting, because Paul knew all that the table of the Lord meant and all the instruction that would come with it, but what he says here is is that he begins to see something that only Jesus could reveal to him. And I'm just saying it is time that you and I began to see something in this moment that only Jesus can reveal to us. It is His broken body. It is His shed blood. And that's the only reason we can even throw this kind of a party. Communion is that moment in church life where we are unveiled to, again, the power and the centrality of the cross and Christ's sacrifice. I mean, I mean, we've got to capture awe again and wonder. A person died for you. Just for you, instead of you. We are more respectful at a Broadway show at times than we are around the table of the Lord. I was invited even this Friday at a high school football game to give the invocation at the football game. And, and we went through the, 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 the star-spangled banner and all the things that they do in order to invoke a respect. And then they handed it over to me and, and the crowd died down just a little bit. But I am amazed at when we pray how some people, there's no reverence, there's no respect, there's no awe. And it's not a slight against me. It's a slight against Him. How many times have, 
you perhaps got into an old closet and you opened up a cardboard box that was filled with family photos. Or maybe some of you will remember this. You remember when 8mm film was big? Some of you had that 8mm film. Of course, a lot of that has been transferred now to either VHS or DVDs. But you know, we have those boxes at our house, boxes of, of photos of kids and vacations and family events. And on occasion, we, we bring them out and we sentimentally reminisce and say to ourselves, oh, wasn't that nice? That, that was a nice moment. I remember that. And oh, remember, remember the kids, weren't they cute? And how about old Uncle Bob? He's a hoot, isn't he? I mean, he's crazy. And sometimes I think we come to the table and it's sort of like that. It's like this, this simple stroll down memory lane. Oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, man, he did a lot. He, he sure did. And, 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 and he really did something that day. And, and, and let's not forget now, as we're remembering all this, that we got homework to do when we get home today. Oh, yeah, yeah, as I'm taking, oh, yeah, yeah, let's not forget. I, I've got some extra work I got to do uh, before I get back to the office on Monday. Uh, let's not forget I've got sports practice. Um, oh, I got to get that proposal in. Oh, yeah, yeah, thank Oh, thank you, thank you. Yes, it is his broken body. It is his spilled blood. Oh, yes, thank you. Hey, do you understand that the moment we receive the elements, we are standing in the center of history? The universe and all creation stops as it considers the cross. And time bows to eternity. And suddenly the reality of redemption is sprung alive again that is found only in the cross. And at that moment, it's God's, it's God's ordinance to us that I'm going to give you a moment where one more time you can stop in all of eternity and remember if it were not for the cross, you wouldn't be here. Some of you literally would not be here. That's what Paul says. He says, every time you partake of this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we got to get that revelation. Number two, the scripture says we got to examine ourselves. Verse 28 says, let a man examine himself. What does it mean? How do you do that? In fact, I think the answer was in verse 27, because it says that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner. In an unworthy manner. I believe the examination of oneself revolves around the concept of am I preparing to receive something in an unworthy manner? What does unworthy manner mean? I, I believe the concept of unworthy, listen very carefully, I don't believe it's linked to works. I don't, I don't believe that you can work your way into a right relationship with God. I don't believe that. I don't believe you can be good enough in order to merit something from the Lord. But as I was just praying and saying, Lord, help me communicate to your people here. Help me understand what it means, unworthy manner. I'm convinced this is what you can disagree with me, but I, I believe I'm right. An unworthy manner means that when we begin to handle it with familiarity. If you partake in an unworthy manner, if it's just a familiar moment. It's interesting that Paul mentions in all of this that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he puts that in there. Betrayal. Betrayal happened that night. What, what, what does it have to do with betrayal? I believe that this whole thing for the Corinthians had become so familiar that they didn't even stop and consider the relationship that was in front of them. And, and we all know who betrayed Jesus on that night, right? Who betrayed Jesus? Judas. Judas betrayed Jesus. Well, what was the deal with Judas? Because that was the night they were gathering around the table and initially 
uh, Christ instituted what we would now come to know as communion or the table of the Lord. What was the deal with Judas? Judas had a three-year journey with Jesus, and when he gets to the table, all of a sudden, he no longer sees Jesus as the Messiah. He no longer sees Him as the Redeemer. He no longer sees Him as the Son of God. He just simply sees Him as a means to His end that will no longer end like He wanted it. And he wasn't able to correct it. And so he was going to bail before the moment found its full expression. Now, listen to me. This is what I believe unworthy means. It means if we come down here and we receive the elements. And all we see in Jesus is a self-help program to get you to your best life now. Then you've got a problem with familiarity. If all you see Jesus is your ticket to paying your bills and meeting your needs He's sort of this tag-along friend, which is great to have when you need him, but when he encroaches on your life, he's instantly pushed to the side. This person, Jesus, laid his life down for you. Does that not even cause you a moment to stop and reflect? Jesus didn't die so that you could just get your bills paid. He didn't die just so you could find yourself your man or your woman. He didn't die just so somehow your bank accounts could be full. He died to keep you out of hell. And that's the only way that keeps you out is Jesus. Examine yourself, he says. I can't give you the exam. I have no yardstick to measure your heart. But he looks and he says, you must examine yourself. It's time, church, that we take some exams again. Because if all you see is a good man sacrificing for a cause and it really doesn't move you much, then Paul says we're a lot like the crowd cheering around the event. We're guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Get a hold of that. We are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So we've got to walk in revelation. We've got to examine ourselves. And then number three, we've got to discern the Lord's body. That's what he says here. Discern the Lord's body. Some have said that this has to do with correctly evaluating the church. You know, the body of Christ. And I don't think so, because I believe that when the Bible speaks about the church as the body, it uses the phrase body of Christ. Paul's real clear here. He says this is the Lord's body. The Lord's body. This is. This is the sacrifice. We're talking about the Lord's body here. In fact, to discern the Lord's body it was interesting. I just went back and I read my Greek New Testament. And the word there for discern is a word that doesn't come up often. It's not the normal word for, for discernment. It, it, it's krima, which actually means to make a final decision. When he says discern the Lord's body, he's literally saying make a final decision. Render a final judgment. Paul's saying to the Corinthians, you, you've not made the final decision about all of this. That's what he's really saying. He says you've not discerned the Lord's body rightly. You've not made a final decision about all of this. Is the cross really all you've got? Is the cross your only hope? Is the cross your only source? Paul would say to the Romans, he said, it is the power of God. Is the cross the only way you will ever be reconciled with God? Is, is, is it the cross? Have you come to the place where you've made the final decision that no matter what, no matter what comes my way, no matter what circumstances thrown my way, no matter what, it is the cross. I will cling to that old rugged, rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to that old rugged cross so that I can exchange it one day for a crown. You understand, there was a day glory was on that song. 
Is it any wonder in the American church we are spiritually weak and we are sick and we are dying? You can go to a third world country and they will raise the dead. We can't raise a gnat. In America, we can't change, we can't change anything through prayer. So we don't pray much anymore. We just try to figure out a new technique, a new strategy, get a new political party in there. Let's do, let's, let's hold a rally. Let's do this. Let's do that. It's because the glory has departed. And we've got to begin to do our part in restoring that. And around the table of the Lord, it is your opportunity to make your declaration that all I've got is the cross. That's all I've got to offer you. I don't, I don't have a slick facility to offer you. I don't, I don't have all the raging technology. I don't pay my band members a gajillion dollars to play just perfectly Nashville written licks on their instruments. I don't have that. I don't have the children's ministry that some places have. I don't have the youth ministry other places have. I don't have all the bells and the whistles and all the whirly bird things we can do in order to entertain you. All I've got is the cross, but if you get the cross, you've got it all. You've got it all. That's what Paul's asking these, these Corinthians who are meeting from house to house. They're going underground. They're living in days where the very government is killing them at an attrition rate that would boggle the mind. All they had was the cross. That's all they had. That's all they had. And here in the American church, we, we think we're all that. We, We're so smug. We're so elitist. We go to third world countries with our mission program and they put us to shame. We need to see third world people start importing missionaries to our nation. I'm just not sure. I'm not sure that evaluation has taken place in most believers or most churches. And so as we prepare our hearts to come to the table... I just want to share this with you. My hope is not that somehow we think we have to be perfect to come to the table. If, 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 if you've gotten that vibe, then I'm going to break it right now. Ain't nobody perfect this morning. Nobody's perfect. That's why we needed Jesus. He was the only perfect one. So none of you, not me, not anybody, none of us can stand up here in our own righteousness and say, I can take of the elements not possible. But if you come in humility, say, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, I repent from my, my waywardness and my familiarity and my trivialization and my smugness. I, I repent from these things and I hunger to see the power of the table restored. You know, it's interesting. When Moses first went up to get the Ten Commandments, The glory of God so radiated upon his body that the scripture tells us that he had to uh, he had to design a veil over his face because the glory of God was so on his face that the people could not behold him because of the glory of God that was on him. So he covered his face with a veil. Now, listen to me very carefully. There was a time after, I don't know, years, perhaps that the glory faded off of Moses face. But he kept the veil. There was no glory, but he kept the veil. The tragedy for us is there was a day that the glory of God was on the table. There was such glory that it would heal people. It would mend people. It would strengthen people. It would keep them from dying. And yes, when they mishandled it, the repercussions took place. But what happened was when the glory lifted, we kept the ritual. 
And I believe God is calling us to restore the grace on the table. Mom and dad, would you do your part in starting to teach your kids about that? Do you know, it's interesting. You may throw stones at Catholics, but what's interesting is, is that Catholics will take the time to teach their kids exactly what they believe in all of this until they come to the moment of their first communion. And they don't touch anything up there until they understand exactly what is going on. Methodists and Lutherans, they do the same thing. They have confirmation classes. And I remember years ago, I went through a confirmation class. You didn't go down. You didn't go to the altars. And you didn't receive communion unless you knew what it was you were doing. And, and, and we could say to ourselves, well, we're not a mainline denomination. And we are charismatic. And we're Pentecostal. I understand. And what that means is we all do it just whatever way we want to do it. And at what point do we look at our kids and we say, you know what? I don't know that you're there yet. Are you born again? Do you understand what sin is at your age? Do you understand what redemption means? Now, I'm not asking them to be as theologically astute as pastor. I'm not asking that of a five-year-old. But it's got to be more than their snack time and it's cool to do. Baptism has to be more than... Waiting in a hot tub at church. How cool is that? At what point does it no longer become my responsibility to police everything so therefore I'm the bad guy because I do like Wesley did and I refuse somebody at the table and somebody gets all irritated at me and looks at me and says, who am I? i tell you where I've come to. I'm just going to pray the glory comes back and I'm going to let God sort it out. And then you'll wish I would have been the policeman. Are you following me? There's a day, Numbers 14.21 says, God speaking, He says, as surely as I live, the whole earth will be filled with my glory. There's coming a day before Jesus returns, the glory of God's going to come back to the church. I'm not kidding. The presence of God is going to sweep into His church. And what we've refused to put in order, God Himself will put in order. God Himself will vindicate His name. I'm not here. Listen, if, if you're saying you're, you're, you're scaring me, good. It is time for the fear of the Lord to come back to us again. If we can't fear Him in His house, how will we fear Him out there? If there isn't some sense of reverence and awe and wonder and marvel here, how in the world will you take it out there? There's going to come a day, I prophesy this, that when the glory comes back, there'll be preachers. I'm not talking just you. I'm talking preachers who have become familiar and mishandled His Word and mishandled the holy things of God. They will die before the people. Now, I realize some of you will go, I don't believe that's God. Well, then you believe what you want to believe. I'm just telling you, when the glory shows up, people get carted out. That's here. So what you believe doesn't interest me. What God says does interest me. And it happened in the book of Acts. New Testament, my friend. Lots of grace. I'm just, I, I'll exhort Laura and the worship team and all of you. There's a, there's a day. There's, there's, I know there's musicians right now. They, they were playing in a bar on Saturday night, drunk as a skunk. And now they're up on Sunday morning leading the people of God in worship. There's going to come a day when we're not going to have to work that one out. God will work that one out. God will do it. God will do it. God will do it. Stand with me, will you please?